Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I don't know if you know this, um, why would you? A <laughs> bit of insider info, but I actually record that intro every time, as opposed to just having like a little clip that I record once and, and slot in. Um, I think just I see it as, you know, part of the flow of the intro. But I always read that line and think of it in like visual terms as like, tweets really annoying tweets actually um that have a clap emoji between every word so it's like um it's like through the lens of the woman doing just that or something I always read it with that kind of rat-a-tat-tat cadence I don't really know why I spun out into that uh aside but yeah fun fact anyway (laughs) back back to back to the script Um, Just a bit of housekeeping from me. If you're a regular listener, you might have noticed that the last three episodes have come quite thick and fast, but from today's onwards, uh, they'll be reverting back to a weekly Tuesday release, so that's when you can expect new episodes like this one to drop. But if weekly doesn't feel like enough me in your life, uh, I also have a tiny letter called Get a Grip, which I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but it exists, and you can sign up at tinyletter.com forward slash Nicole underscore Davis. Basically, that's just like a little roundup uh, that goes out on Fridays of film industry related news, interviews, events, ongoings, inspiration um, that I've heard some people enjoy. Speaking of enjoyment, this week's interview was a real treat to record. Sam Jolie, my guest, radiates joy and positivity. But what I got from this chat is the sense that that is a choice and one that sometimes takes work. And so I hope you come away from listening to it with a smile, but also a sense of how you too can kind of celebrate your own personal achievements. Sam is head of marketing and publicity at the film and television production house Seesaw Films. These are the folks that made The King's Speech, Lion, Widows, Macbeth, Beth, Ammonite, Slow West, Top of the Lake, State of the Union, and more recently Jane Campion's ferocious gothic western The Power of the Dog, and Andrew Hayes' riveting TV series The North Water. Sam started her career in documentary television before joining Seesaw in 2011, where she worked her way up from assistant. We spoke about many things to do with marketing, such as poster design, creating trailers, what good publicity actually looks like, and how involved directors are in the marketing side of things, as well as several more broad topics, such as mental health on film sets, how you can better value and advocate for yourself, and that time Sam produced a Steve McQueen-directed music video for Kanye West. This is episode 95 of Best Girl Grip. I always start off with asking where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied there. So I went to the University of Glasgow and I studied psychology. Interesting. Uh, it, it's a four-year course out there, I think. So it's it's slightly more similar to, I think, the way that the US college system works in that you have your sort of major, which was psychology. And then the mm-hmm. first couple of years, I also did theatre studies and film studies. But the the film studies part of the course, I just didn't really gel with. It was very theory based and not there wasn't a practical element to it at all. And I was like, you know what? I'm just not into it. I just was like, if I want to do film studies, I wanted to do something practical and learn that side mm-hmm. of things. So I was like, OK, I'm just going to do straight psychology. That's interesting. So you, you had an interest in film and filmmaking, the more practical side of it, going into it. And did it dampen your interest in that? Or you just thought, I'll put that to bed for now and revisit it at some later stage? It didn't dampen my interest in it. I've always had a massive interest in film. I mean, 
I grew up watching a lot of films with my family and talking about them a lot. So that sort of theoretical side of it, I was like, I feel like I've covered a lot of this. Mm. <laughs> and and it, a lot of it sort of was going over quite familiar ground. And I thought I could park it for a bit, focus on psychology, get that degree, and then sort of reconsider. And what career were you considering in the context of graduation? I mean, I had no idea. I really had no idea. I mean, and I I feel like what I've said so far is suggesting that I was like really intensely committed to my psychology degree. And it was really interesting and I loved it. But I definitely did not go to that many lectures. <laughs> I did I did spend a lot of my time in my flat watching films. I had a love film subscription. You know, so I I did spend a lot lot of time doing that when I probably should have been focusing on my psychology lectures. And so I'm wondering, you know, what was your first official job in the film industry? You know, like what was your entry point into that world? So, yeah, as as I said, I, I, I grew up watching a lot of films. It's sort of in my blood a bit because my dad used to be a sound editor. Oh, cool. Very much in the post-production world. And my granddad on my mum's side wrote a few screenplays in the 60s. He was in advertising, but he had a little sort of side business for a while. He wrote a few Peter Sellers films. It's it's been around and, and like, you know, we always watch films, talked about them a lot. Like it was a really important thing in our family. So it was always something that I wanted to do. And when I was just after I graduated... In Glasgow, my mum, who is not in the film industry, she's a, an exhibition producer. She, I was like, oh my God, what do I do? I've graduated, but what do I do next? I've no idea. She was like, okay, well, <laughs> I have a friend who I've just worked with. Why don't I set you up for a coffee with him and you can just talk to him about your CV? Because he works in production, not in film or TV, but maybe he can, he'll be a good person to talk to, give you some pointers. And I did. And he was great. He really helped me think about my CV in a, in a very, and he just made me think about it very differently. Whereas I was like, well, I've got no experience. What do I put down? Like just, I worked in customer service at O2 and in a shop, but he made me think more sort of out of the box and add in things that weren't necessarily things that were obvious to me. Mm. He helped me with my CV and then said, well, look, I have, I know some people who work for a production company in Glasgow. They might be looking for some work experience people. Why don't you just send them an email, say that I suggested it, see how that goes. And I remember writing that email and being absolutely terrified. I've never, I've never written like a cold email to anyone before. Right. Didn't know like really what to say. Didn't want to be too beggy. <laughs> like, just like try and be charming, but like casual. <laughs> um, like just like, just on the offhand. But he was lovely. Said, yes, absolutely. Come and do like two weeks unpaid work experience. And at the time that was fine because I was, I had like a couple of months left in my accommodation in Glasgow and I was working in customer service in O2 in the evenings. So I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll do two weeks work experience. Amazing. And after a couple of days, so it was a really small production company and it was all in one room. And the only sort of private area was the kitchen. So I remember he asked me to come into the kitchen with him and he offered me this researcher slash production assistant role that was going to be for like two months. It was like 80 pounds a day, which was more money than I'd ever heard of (laughs) 
by then. And it was amazing. I was like, God, this is a, it was a, I remember so clearly it being, it feeling like such a huge success moment. And it was, it was in factual TV, which I didn't think it was something that I wanted to continue in, but it was a really great experience. And I was, I was the only person doing this researching. And so a lot of, there was a lot of responsibility on me. It was really fun. Like it was really stressful and it felt like a lot of pressure sometimes, but it was a very supportive workplace. And, and I was like, yeah, this is great. I'm going to, this is the start of my career and I'm going to go back to London and get all these jobs and it's going to be amazing. And that's not quite what happened. (laughs) What did happen? So I went back to London and I was very privileged that my parents lived in London so I could move back in with them and do unpaid work experience for however long it took. But it was it was 18 months mm. of just working at the weekends in a shop and doing literally anything that came up. It was so miserable and I got so demoralized and I was really after that that 18 months I just was thinking none of this is leading anywhere. I'm not getting any, I'm learning as much as I can from each of these opportunities, but nothing is leading on to anything else. And at the, I, I then got a job as a receptionist, part-time receptionist for this video on demand company. And at the same time, one of the work experience things that I'd done, I'd met a producer who had she'd been working in a completely different industry and then had decided she wanted to set up a production company and so wanted someone to help her do that. So I was working part like 12 hour days with half, half of the time on reception and then half of the time with her. And that was a lot, <laughs> but I learned a lot there. Mm. And it was when I was working there that I saw, I think on production base or Mandy or one of those sites, an ad for an assistant role at Seesaw. And I was like, okay, I've got to do this. <laughs> and so I went for that and had I had two, two interviews that were really just like personality sort of tests almost. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, because there were only three people in the company at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was a kind of like, does your personality fit in with the company? Yeah. And got that and never left. I mean, that that sounds right, because being an assistant is something that you can learn how to do if someone, you know, has the time and patience to teach you. So it feels like, yeah, it should be more of a, yeah, a culture and personality fit as opposed to a skills-based test. Were you interested in production? Is that what you were kind of leaning towards doing at the time? Because I'd done so many bits and pieces of work experience, like it was literally just like one week here and mm-hmm. there. But in lots of very different areas of the industry, I had definitely crossed off a lot of things that I knew I didn't want to do. And production was definitely something that felt like the most exciting part of the industry. And also the the, the part that I had, I had had that first taste of just as a researcher in that first job that I mm. had and the sort of immediacy of it, the problem solving. And I, I kind of wanted, I always felt like throughout that, those 18 months of shitty work experience I always felt like I was trying to get back to that feeling so production was definitely where I was looking Mm. and I'm interested because assisting is often you know people's first experience of the film industry you kind of have to start somewhere what did you do to succeed in that role you know what did you think made you a good assistant I mean I think I was a great assistant (laughs) 
because you stayed there and you progressed so they obviously liked having you around <laughs> exactly and I think that part of it was that was that my my natural skills really complemented the role and also because I'm incredibly organized but also really keen to learn and I think that was one of the things in my first interview Mm. that stood out that that was very clear to them and that was important to them and one of the very first things that Ian Canning my boss then who is still my boss now one of the first things that he said to me was just absorb everything because he was he was very young at the time you know he Mm. was 31 or something and he said so he wasn't that far away from when he had started himself and he one of his pieces of advice to me was that what he did when he was an assistant was just read everything that came across his desk and I think one of the really valuable things that I found in that role as an assistant was we were such a small company but we had a lot going on and I had access to everything I could just absorb bits and pieces from every element and that just that made me really good at my job because I was able to I just had this this wealth of information at my disposal and I could learn from it and then feed it back into the job that I was doing yeah absolutely I think it's just sort of having having the balls in some ways to like I don't know you sometimes feel like you shouldn't like 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 you're prying almost you know when you're in those junior roles and you sort of feel like it's a bit closed off but it's sometimes yeah just having the courage to ask those questions or to to sit in on meetings or to read things that maybe feel like they're off limits and and something that I always say to people is just absorb as much as possible and one of the things that that definitely has been such a difficulty for people starting out in the industry in the last year or two is that they've not had that environment to sit Mm. in just listen to conversations yeah and and you can forget how valuable that kind of thing is just listening like with like 20 percent of your brain to something that's going on behind you because you just absorb that information and then it it just sorts itself out in your brain and it comes out you know two years later and then you progress to production executive. I'm wondering, uh, we'll talk about, you know, what that role entails. But then I, I'm wondering, you know, was that your decision? Like, as, a, as in, did you say, I feel ready for more? Or did Ian and the team come to you and say, we feel like you're ready to step up? How did that uh, promotion happen, basically? I mean, I think that it's it was definitely something that I fought for. And there is always a problem with being a great assistant uh, in that you can be too good and then you won't progress. So you can make a rod for your own back in that way. But I I did a sort of slow transition away from it where I was production exec and also was assisting Ian for a while. So there was a a little bit of a transition. We're not just, you know, going to rip the bandaid off. So I think that was a really good thing. But yeah, it was definitely something that I had to, because why, you know, if you're, if you're great at at something, especially something like that, it can be hard to find really good assistance. So it it is something that you have to, you have to fight for. And what was the production exact role? You know, what were you doing? What did you like about that role? I mean, it was great. I mean, it, it was really pretty much anything and everything that needed doing to support the production, which is a very vague answer. But for, for, to give you a couple of examples, on Slow West, I jumped in as as production coordinator. We did a, a week shoot in the Highlands in Scotland. So I was up there for a few weeks for prep and then the shoot doing the production coordinator role. And I was just thinking about this this morning when I was looking at these questions. And I'd remembered that we also had to do 
we had to do a pickup shot that was one tiny shot of an actor lying on the ground. And we ended up doing it in London Fields quite sneakily uh, late at night. And we, we used Michael Fassbender's flat as our green room. We had, I think, Robbie Ryan, the DOP, shot it on his iPhone. Wow. We had like five crew members and that was it. We just snuck into London Fields, quickly did the shot and then snuck out again. <laughs> And, and I, you know, I, I had to get all the equipment, put all of that together and, and it, it totally worked. The shots in the final film and I need to rewatch it and try try and find it. It is. Oh, you'll never know. No, (laughs) no, I said it. It, That's that, that really is independent movie making. And it was, Mm -hmm. it's just getting stuck in and throwing yourself into it. I just had to jump in and do it. And that sometimes really is, especially when you're at a small company, everyone really mucks in together and you just have to get it done. Was that the support of the team that kind of gave you the confidence? Was support coming from elsewhere? You know, like what enabled you to feel like you could succeed? Because it can sometimes be paralyzing when you're put in, you know, really scary positions like that, where, and particularly in the film industry, where it really feels like if you fuck up, like mm. you, you can fuck up. So I'm just wondering, you know, what was the culture around you that enabled you to jump into that? Yeah, it's an interesting question that, because I think definitely the culture was incredibly supportive and it was very much a kind of, I suggested that I go and be the production coordinator and they were like, yeah, go for it. Like get that experience because it's valuable. You know, if you, if your managers can see the value that that's going to bring to your back to the company, then that's a real sort of hurdle that's out of the way. Mm. And so there was definitely that support and also knowing that the support was there of, of the company to fall back on in case I was like, actually, I can't handle this. Like, you know, I could have said, no, I can't do it. We need to hire someone. But it just felt like, and partly I think it's the, the way that I've been brought up and my school, you know, going to a girl's school, I was never really told that I couldn't do anything. It's like, you don't feel like, whether it's just a societal thing, you just don't have that in that environment. Mm. So you're, you're pushed. And I, you know, I went to a, a school that was very academic and they did really push you very hard but there's an expectation of greatness which is stressful to a degree definitely but it definitely left me with a feeling of oh maybe I could do anything that I wanted to do I have an instinct to just well what's the worst that can happen let's just let's just see and is it that mentality that led you to the head of marketing role, considering that you hadn't really done marketing? Again, was it kind of were you doing production and marketing and then you, you know, baby stepped into that role of head of marketing? Yeah, I mean, again, it was kind of it felt like a very natural progression because the way that my career's progressed at Seesaw, I came in at exactly the right time because it was very small, but it mm. was I, I sort of rode in on the coattails of the King's Speech. They would just got this massive success and were building off that with a really impressive slate. And so it was inevitable that the company was going to grow. And I joined at a perfect time where I could grow with the company. Mm. And I've sort of carved out this niche for myself quite organically, just by, by virtue of I was production exec, but I was working a lot with the distributors and broadcasters on the marketing and publicity of of all of our productions. And that was becoming more and more. And then we had a corporate PR team who I then ended up managing. So it just was sort of naturally something that I was really enjoying. So I took on more of it. And then 
at a certain point it became well it it became a full-time job <laughs> so I had to drop the production side which was a, a difficult decision but at that point I felt like I was doing at least three full-time jobs at once mm. and I had to make that decision. Why did marketing win? I think because a lot of the the, the production side in as in when you're working in the production team rather than in the producing team, which is different. But in the production team, it's very, it's not particularly creative. And there is, it's very, very just based on problem solving. There's a lot of spreadsheets. It's incredibly stressful. Not that marketing publicity isn't stressful, but there's, I, I felt like I was missing that creative element. And that's what the marketing brought me. And that's why I, I gravitated towards that and away from production. How do you define the role that you're doing now, head of marketing and publicity? You know, what to you does that entail? I mean, everything. It's such a varied role, which is what makes it amazing. I mean, in a nutshell, I oversee the marketing and publicity across the entire life cycle of the film or TV show. That So I, I put together a, a marketing publicity strategy for the company on the corporate side, but also on a project by project basis. And that's what then informs everything else that I do. And because I'm one of the only people at the company that work across film and TV and across the UK and Australian offices. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very, it's a big slate. It's a very big slate, yeah. but, but it means that I do have to have that oversight over everything that's happening. Is it easier to explain in the context of something specific? So if we talk through, if, there, if there's an example of a film and you talk through like the timeline, you know, from Cecil mm. boarding that project or devising that project to, you say, the entire life cycle, like what does that contain? So we've got the, we've got our corporate PR team who I manage and they're aligned on our strategy and they're always looking out for opportunities for us on the corporate side of things, mm-hmm. whether within the framing of, of a project or more generally around the company. And then depending on the project, I can I'll I can start very, very early on creating like lookbooks or sales reels with the writer or director. And then I'll put the internal strategy together. And when we go into production, I hire the team for each project, which is the unit publicist, unit photographer, EPK team, and sometimes a separate photographer for if we're doing a poster shoot. And then go through all the the process during post-production on editing those approvals and and all of that side of things. And then when we get into the, when the film's finished and when it's delivered, I work very closely with the sales agents and broadcasters and distributors on each project. And I'm the person who liaises with the director and producers on sign off for all that all of those materials all the artwork and trailers and campaign materials Uh, you mentioned like working with the writer director there on Mm. kind of some of the materials how in conversation are you with them is it dependent on how interested they are or do you just expect them to kind of to to be integral to that process yeah it totally depends on on the project I mean in in an ideal world I'll have I'll have worked with the director on something in, in the very early stages, like the lookbook or pitch document or sales reel, which means that I can have, I'll have had a lot of long creative conversations with them about their vision for the project. 
And then it, that means that when it comes to release, we already have a shorthand. So for example, with both Ammonite and the North Water, we created these beautiful books when mm. we were still in development. And they were not only sales pieces, because we, you know, we sent them out to potential financers and, and distributors, but they also then became incredibly useful for the production designer, costume designer, and resources for the actors when it came to production. Mm. And it was so much fun. It's so fun working on those projects very early on because it I think it's also very helpful for the director to really clarify their vision into something that's like a little practical document and a, and a, a sort of go-to guide for their vision that mm. is very easily accessible to to anyone who's joining the production yeah I often ask that question of directors like how do you make sure mm. that people are always on the same page with your vision and it sounds like yeah that's like the perfect tool to enable that it means that we have a very close relationship mm. From the very beginning which means that when we get to release we can work super closely together it depends on the project but all the best releases from my perspective are the ones that are the most collaborative whereas distributors are coming to it from a very different perspective and with a very different agenda i've been embedded in the project since the beginning of its life cycle mm. so i can be this sort of oracle <laughs> Of, of information mm. and also of that creative vision as well. Well, that's one of my questions because obviously Seesaw is a production company. So then obviously once the distributor comes on board, as you say, they have their own agenda, their own marketing campaign, they create their own materials. How involved are you with them or do you step back and fully hand it over at that point? No, I would say probably that's when I'm at my busiest. Right, okay. Um, so at the moment, it, we're incredibly, you know, we've had the most bananas couple of years where it just so happened that around the time that a pandemic hit, we were just ready to get going on so many different things. Mm. And now we're, we're in production on tons, but we also have a lot of releases. And because we, because we produce a lot of different work and we work with a lot of different broadcasters and distributors, I'm the person who's sort of the, the fulcrum in the middle of all the campaigns and i've got to i've got to make sure that that each broadcaster and distributor is working in a way that benefits the campaign in a global sense mm. whereas they are often and quite rightly only thinking about their own territory yeah. whereas i'm thinking more holistically about the project as a whole and across a global scene and also thinking back to what our objectives are for the project and about mm keeping it sort of within the seesaw brand as well and some projects are necessarily bigger than others some of the smaller ones need more support from us as well so we get more into the nitty-gritty of of those campaigns than others but I mean there's also festivals and awards coordination which is always another massive thing one of the most important things to me at the point of release is that so the production company can sometimes get a bit lost in the stage of release. And the project that we have worked on and incubated and developed and produced, we, we could have been working on it for about seven or eight years. It gets, when we hand it over to a distributor, it gets taken over by them. And that's a completely natural process because they have to take ownership of it at that point. But you can very often as a production company get lost in that process. Mm. So it's really important for me and for us 
as a company to maintain our visibility throughout the release of the project. And that's definitely something that if you don't have someone like me there, whose job it is to look out for that stuff, you can get a little bit lost in the weeds. Mm. I suppose it's crucial as well to like stakeholder relationships and those filmmaker relationships, because you kind of, you, you could be the person that gets the blame, even though you might not have, you know, the ultimate say so in, in some of those decisions. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to, I mean, I know that I, I'm incredibly annoying to all the distributors and broadcasters because I stay on their case constantly. I'm always in their ear going, I know I'm a broken record, but can you please include the producers and production company in that press release, for example? Because mm. even small things like that can get missed and, and then then you're just nowhere. You're nowhere across the project at all. And, mm. and that's, it's more than a shame. It's It's a real devaluation I feel of of all of the blood sweat and tears that we've put into the project there's a famous saying in publicity yeah all publicity is good publicity I I mean I don't feel like that's true (laughs) but I'm I'm wondering from your perspective you know what does good publicity for a film look like I mean yeah I definitely I'm not sure I agree with that phrase (laughs) there's definitely I think there's visibility there is value in but certainly nowadays there is definitely bad publicity and it's it's something that is that is sometimes quite hard to put a proper value on Mm. but for me I think a successful marketing and publicity campaign is about raising consumer and industry awareness for a project hundreds and hundreds of films and tv shows are made each year so getting noticed is sometimes incredibly hard mm-hmm. so if people are watching it and talking about it then that is a big marker of success and then it depends on the project you know some can be cult hits like how to talk to girls at parties which is one of my personal faves and some can be massive oscar nominated box office successes like lion so you can see some of that coming to a certain extent and you can mm-hmm. it's about identifying that audience or that sort of early swell and then making sure that you ride the wave, but also acknowledging that sometimes things can really take you by surprise, which is fun. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we never could have predicted just how successful Lion would become. So there's only so much planning you can do. And some of it is just alchemy and magic. Mm. Yeah. In some ways you're responsible for sort of the resurgence of Dev Patel, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to get more granular about this idea of what a successful campaign looks like, I'm wondering if you, we can talk about trailers and posters and, mm-hmm. and what you consider to be a good trailer, because there's there's a lot of opinions out there about, you know, showing too much or mm-hmm. spoiling the narrative. How do you conceive of a trailer that is effective? Again, it's, it is, it's different for each project. I'm, and also everyone has their own and very different opinions on it. So it's one of those things that you have to acknowledge that there is no one right answer to it. Mm -hmm. And everyone's opinion is valid, really. There are some projects where it is more valuable to be a bit more specific about the plot in the trailer and some where it's more valuable to just get more of an essence of it and the visual language. And I think that it's similarly with with artwork, it's it's incredibly difficult. With with the Northwater recently, we had a month 
to we we sold it to AMC Plus, and we had a month in between selling it to them putting it on the platform. Wow! And we didn't have a poster or a trailer, and so that was incredibly stressful. <laughs> but I worked with some amazing teams. The team at Intermission, who I adore, mm. did the the posters. Actually, we ended up with two posters, and I know that they're really great at their job and also that their taste really aligned with what we wanted to get Mm. and what we wanted to show audiences for that, for the North water. And so I, I put a lot of trust in them that they would, they would understand it. And they came back to us in a couple of weeks with a first round that was incredible. And we loved them so much. We went with, with two of them. And so you do have to, I have to develop quite a roster of of different creative agencies that I work with and Mm. that I can sort of pick and choose who I think creatively will fit with each project. Because there are some, there are some agencies where if we're like, okay, we need this to be like really commercial and punchy. These are the right guys to do this. And if we want something that is more lyrical and artistic, maybe these ones are going to be the people to go with. I I think that there is, there's a lot of personality to it and you have to be quite good at matchmaking. Speaking of uh, the Northwater, obviously Seesaw do TV series as well. And in my mind, you kind of pioneered this like wave of high-end TV because I feel like Top of the Lake was one of the first, you know, where you saw like prestige actors like Nicole Kidman and Jane Campion um, gravitating towards TV. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak about the differences to putting together a marketing campaign for a film as opposed to a TV show? I mean, firstly, thank you. <laughs> uh, it was the first series of Top of the Lake really was, it felt like a big deal at the time. And it was around that time of True Detective and Us. Mm. And it was a real, you could feel the tides changing in terms of that high-end TV production. And so it's been amazing to be at the forefront of that and to grow our TV business with it. It's now equal, if not more television that we're doing. And because we we started so early with Top of the Lake, we had a really good grounding to work off. So we've just, it's just boomed. It's amazing. But to get back to your question, <laughs> in terms of the difference between a TV and film campaign, I mean, increasingly, it's not very different at all. I think that the main difference from my perspective has actually been that a lot of TV broadcasters, especially in the UK, are quite stuck in their ways. So it can be a little bit more of a battle to get them to think outside of the box and actually approach the high-end TV from a slightly more theatrical, cinematic perspective. Because when you've got big name actors and talent, you know, writers, directors involved... It is a, it's a different approach to when you're you're working on a small TV show which which doesn't have any big names to it. And we've certainly had a mixture of both. But I would say that it, it really is increasingly very similar. And I, I find it quite helpful to approach it with a similar perspective. What does outside the box thinking look like to you? I think that it's really just not thinking about it by the numbers. A lot of the big sort of studios and TV broadcasters have a sort of checklist, I think, and are like, okay, this is what we've done for the last 20 years. 
So we'll do this, 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 and this, and this. And we've had to push a little bit for including our shows in festivals, for example, which was hugely successful for Top of the Lake. Mm. You know, we, we premiered that at Sundance and Berlin and we showed all six episodes and people we were like, are people really at a film festival? Are people going to sit in a room for six hours on a TV show? But they loved it. <laughs> in fact, at halftime, they all got their little like lunchbox with their snacks in. And it was a real celebration. It was a little bit of a light bulb moment for us as a company of thinking, yeah, you know what? We can actually, we can present our TV shows in a way that, well, we can filter into this cinematic audience. Mm. It's not different. People who watch, I mean, this is, you know, everyone watches everything on their TV now. So mm. it's it's the same audience and you don't have to treat them differently. And we did the same for Top of the Lake China Girl. We screened that at Cannes. And again, people were sitting there for six hours. I mean, people will do a lot for Jane Campion, it turns out. And it's not just doing what you've done for the last 15, 20 years, you can actually approach it in a with a wider scope. Yeah, not being afraid to like reinvent the wheel each time. I'm wondering, you know, what's the part of the job that you love the most? There is so much about it that I love, really. I think the variety is probably the thing that I love the most. No two days are the same. At the moment, I'm working across about 15 projects at different stages from development to release. And it really keeps me on my toes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can be incredibly hard work, but there's also just a lot of fun and you have to make sure that you enjoy those fun moments. And I'm saying that as much to myself as to anyone listening, <laughs> because I'm incredibly lucky and privileged to have worked with so many amazing people. And I don't take that for granted. And as a company, we've had some amazing successes And because we're so busy, you can get to a point where you don't enjoy those moments of success because Mm -hmm. you're just already thinking about the next thing. That's something that I have worked on myself to just sit and enjoy that moment, because what are you doing it for if you're not going to enjoy it? How do you avoid overworking, particularly as a head of department and as someone that's in dialogue with Australia, which is obviously a very difficult time zone to, to keep tabs on? How do you set boundaries? I am not entirely there yet. (laughs) So definitely the hardest thing about the job is the hours. And because because I work with both Australia and LA a lot, Mm. it can mean that I'm doing very early calls in the morning and also very late calls in the evening. And some days where I'm starting my day at 7.30 with a call with Australia, and then I'll also have a call with Australia and LA at the end of the day at like 11 p.m. So that's a very extreme version of a day, but that literally happened a couple of weeks ago. And so I have to, I've had to force myself to be a lot more strict with my, with my own boundaries. And if I'm having a day like that, to carve out some time in the middle of the day to give myself a break, which is very hard to do. Because it feels like you're skiving. (laughs) Exactly. It totally does. And it also feels like, this is also difficult with going on holiday because there's always in the back of my mind, like, oh, but I'm going to come back to so many emails. And like, it's just easier if I just don't go away, <laughs> which is terrible. Don't, no one should think that, but it's, 
the yeah there, there is a kind of there's always like oh but it, while while I'm not working all of that work is just building up and actually I think for me lockdown helped me set those boundaries better and I know that it's been difficult for some people because everything has bled into everything else because you're working from your dining table and and then where does work end and and your your own time begin but I think because of that I had to give myself a a really structured schedule and was less hard on myself about it as well. And it always is an ongoing thing, isn't it? Because boundaries can change as well. So it's 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 having that like attitude of flexibility. But yeah, you're so right in the I've had to be so strict as well with like stuff during the day, just allowing yourself like time during the day. It really is a hard mental barrier to get over. We're just conditioned to think like these are the hours that we should be working. And there is such a kind of even if it's not something that that you get explicitly from the company, mm. there's something ingrained in us which is like, if I don't work exactly to these hours then I'm skiving and that's even if you're actually so it's about setting what you're comfortable with and also just being flexible because from my perspective and the way that I approach my management of, of, of people in my team is if you get the work done I don't really matter when you do it if as long as it's something that works for you and the work gets done then great you know, I think being very, very strict about those times is is not helpful. I'm wondering if there's something that you're proudest of having achieved in your career so far. I've had the opportunity to do so much. And I think as a general rule, something that I'm really proud of is my ability to jump in and do them. And I think that speaks to what I was saying earlier about that mentality of just, oh, I'll give it a go. Like we had a a photo shoot on set a couple of years ago where the photographer just shut down and she was just, she lost, lost confidence and was like, I I basically can only take the photos. I can't talk to, I can't talk to the cast at all. So I had to step in and art direct the photo shoot, which I'd never done before. And these were very A-list actors. Mm. But I was like, well, what are we going to do? Like there's no, either I run away, which (laughs) does not feel like an option, and wasn't what I wanted to do. I've just got to go for it. I know what I need as the end result. So pretty sure I can wing this. And I think that is that is one of the things is just being able to wing it and fake it till you make it. I'm a big believer <laughs> in that. You can get far by by convincing yourself that you can do it. And that's what I think is like, you're faking it to yourself more so than anyone else. At the time that I was a production exec, I had a very strange couple of weeks which was was a total blur and which is why I often sort of forget that it happened. But I ended up producing a Kanye West music video that Steve McQueen directed. <laughs> so I'd worked really closely with Steve on Shame and we'd been working together on a TV pilot for HBO. And he came into the office and was like, So I bumped into Kanye West at the weekend and agreed to direct a music video for him. And he wanted us to help produce it. And at the time, we were the busiest that we'd ever been, which now, looking back on it, is laughable. But we were doing, we were filming two things at the same time. And so we were incredibly busy. So I sort of put my hand up and was like, I can step in. Sure, I can produce a music video. Absolutely no idea what I was doing. But well, I worked very closely with Iconoclast, who are a production company who do a lot of, mm. they're incredibly experienced in music videos. And well, I stepped in as 
Steve's producer working with Iconoclast and we ended up filming it five days later and then a week after that we premiered it in Paris Fashion Week where Kanye did a secret gig and I ended up sitting two seats away from Kim Kardashian (laughs) wild two weeks but it really speaks to that just jumping into something because it's an opportunity that I would have been so stupid to turn down, even Mm. though I didn't really know what I was doing. I had enough confidence in the the knowledge that I'd absorbed about production as a whole Mm. throughout my career up to that point. And this was seven years ago or so. I felt like I could probably wing it enough to make a success of it. And it it was an incredible couple of weeks. In the last year, something that I'm really proud of is the work that I've done with others at Seesaw to develop a and develop and implement a lot of mental health protection in our productions. And so we now have a really comprehensive policy and guidelines that we give to all cast and crew on all of our productions and in-house at Seesaw. And we have a part of that is that we have prepaid counselling sessions available for everyone who works on the production and which is available anonymously to anyone. And it's signposted on the call sheet every day. And mental health is something that's really important to me and is something that is necessarily over the last year has got a lot more visible. And so I think that we are making strides in the industry to correct that. But I'm, I'm I'm really excited to be making changes within the industry and hopefully normalising the, the level of support that we're giving people that will mm-hmm. hopefully get taken on within the industry as a whole. Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad you shared that. And then is there something that you consider yeah. to be the biggest learning curve of your career or something that you wish you'd learned earlier? This is really an interesting question, I think, because it's something that I feel like everything has been a learning curve and I'm still on a learning curve with everything mm. that I'm doing. And that's why it's still interesting. And I've I've always been the sort of person who will, is interested in learning and absorbing. And I learn from everyone I work with, whether they're above me or below me hierarchy wise, you know, there's always something to learn from everyone. But I think that something that it took me a long time to learn was how to advocate for myself and to know my own value. I present as a very confident person, but I'm underneath, I'm like a bundle of anxiety, which I think is true for a lot of people, especially in this industry. Hello, exactly. Welcome. (laughs) Um, So that's definitely something that I've had to teach myself. Mm. And understanding your value is so incredibly important. And that has that has meant that, especially with, with getting my head of marketing and publicity title, that was something that I really had to dig into mm. before I was like, you know what, actually, I think that's what I deserve. And it was it was a tough process to go through because my instinct is to be like, oh no, you know, anyone could do this job. But but actually recognizing that and digging deep and and acknowledging that that I'm really good at my job and and this is what my value is. That mm. that's something that it's a difficult thing to learn, but it is so important. Is there a piece of advice you could offer for how people can better advocate for themselves? Like how do you get better at doing that? It's a tough one to answer, I know. It is tough. I think that one of the things is to is to acknowledge your achievements. I have a tendency to 
gloss over my achievements and wallow in anything that's gone wrong. <laughs> and I know that that is a very common instinct, but, and it's fine to learn from, learn from your mistakes. That's an incredibly valuable thing, but you also have to acknowledge your successes. And even if it's like writing them down, you know, like have a little list of things that you can go back to and go, oh yeah, actually that was really great. Like Mm -hmm. I did a great job directing that photo shoot with absolutely no experience. And it turned out amazingly, (laughs) you know, it's, it's having a little record of those things, I think probably really helps to just reinforce it in your, in your head a bit and to focus on that, learn from your mistakes and then move on and don't wallow in them, which is incredibly easy advice to give. And I do not follow that myself. So I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. (laughs) And then finally, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a hidden gem that you'd like to recommend? I think that, I mean, there's a lot, this was a really difficult question because (sighs) there's, there's so many that I'd want to talk about, but I think one that I would recommend that I don't think many people have seen is my pal Nia DaCosta's first film, it's called Little Woods in the US. Yeah, it's got a different title, hasn't but it? Over here, it's called Crossing the Line, I think. Yeah, 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 you're right. Presumably not to confuse it with the shopping outlet, I guess. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> it's a really long time to realise that that's why. It's like, I don't think that anyone would read that title and go, oh, it's a biopic of the uh, genesis of Little Woods, the shopping company. Anyway, it's bleak and, and very tense, but it's also really beautiful and thoughtful and it's kind of a modern Western, I think, and, and a critique of the US healthcare system mm-hmm, specifically mm-hmm. as it relates to women in the margins of society. And it's a really, I think it's a really beautifully made film. It's obviously been successful for her in that it it, it got her the gig with Candyman, which was mm-hmm, incredible. Mm-hmm. And she's now like a massive big shot marvel director so it 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 definitely did what it needed to in that Mm. sense but not enough people have seen it Mm. um so i think i think it's on amazon maybe amazon prime yeah i think i think that's actually where i watched it so yeah i'll put it in the show notes sam thank you so much for your time today it's gone really quickly and you've been a pleasure to speak with thank you so much for coming on the podcast this has been amazing i've had so much fun oh good i'm so glad Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe if that's your vibe. If you liked this marketing-based chat, I would recommend burrowing into the podcast archive. All episodes are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. And ferreting out my conversations with publicist Kayla Heyer, stills photographer Parisa Tagizadi and director of marketing at Cornerstone, Joanne Michael. Until next time, have a lovely week. Bye.